0: last week, so John chapter 13. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 21 through 30 today. Uh, before we get into our passage, I just want to remind you, this is, we've started kind of a new, a new phase or a new section um, of John, of Jesus' ministry. Uh, if, uh, if, if this is your first time here or if this is the first time you've decided to start paying attention, this is the perfect time to start paying attention. Uh, we're, we're just starting to really see uh, Jesus kind of come really to the forefront of, of God's God's plan that He's had, you know, since since the dawn of time, since the creation uh, of the earth, even before that, uh, as we as we see in John. So the first ten chapters is kind of that first section; it's the biggest section, and really we're just seeing Jesus kind of like come onto the scene. I, I hesitate to say it's like, you know, like an alien lands, you know, in a movie and you're kind of like, well, what's going to happen? Um, because it's, it's something more than that. It's, it's a God that we have had encounters with, but that no one has been able to experience in any kind of intimate way. And now John tells us this word, this powerful force that is God has become flesh and has come to the earth. And now we see, the, that's kind of like the key that it gives us for the whole book, uh, for the whole gospel. We now see, well, what, what's he gonna do? I mean, what's, what is this God like? And so we, we see that Jesus reveals himself. He reveals the character of God in those first 10 chapters. And then the second section, 11 and 12, um, we see, well first, that first section, I will say, it's a little disappointing. And I'm not saying unimpressive because I've said that before and people were well, disappointing. It's, it's not unimpressive. I mean, Jesus heals the sick, you know, people who are lame who can't walk, uh, people who are blind now can see, feeding of the 5,000, walking on water. These things are amazing. I would say, as a follower of Jesus, it is more his interactions with the opposition that usually are disappointing, right? We're just, you're kind of hoping that just. He'll just reserve a little bit of that power to just vaporize a couple of them every now and then. But he doesn't. Instead, his interactions with the opposition are just kind of conversations. Maybe heated, um, and they may be hostile, but they're just words that are exchanged and kind of judgments that Jesus pronounces, But, but nothing really seems to come of it. Nothing substantive, nothing that we can visibly see like we can with the power behind his miracles. And so, The second section, chapters 11 and 12, is so important because we see the purpose that he came for. And we see that what Jesus is doing is he's he's opening up and he's giving us a glimpse into what the purpose of the Messiah, what the purpose of God coming to earth is. And it is not to vaporize the opposition. It is to do something that, that if if we really try and think about it, it's impossible he's going to bring life through through death he's going to bring victory through defeat he's going to bring he's going to bring peace through suffering cleansing through blood which is this unclean thing he's going to bring this this increase in our lives through this huge sacrifice through the greatest sacrifice of the most precious thing that even exists, his own, his own life. And so we see that the opposition, at least in the Gospel of John, the way he, he talks about them, they play a very significant role in accomplishing the work of God. So this third and final section, that's so why I say it's important, it starts in chapter 13. We started it last week, the first 20 verses, this is kind of the powerhouse section. We, we know who Jesus is. We know what he's capable of. We know what he came to do. And now, in these last nine chapters, he is going to do it. All right, so, so that's where we're going to read from. Um, again, we're in John chapter 13. That's the fourth book of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Um, it's also in your index if you're having trouble finding it. Uh, we're going to read from, from verse 1. Uh, just to give us uh, some context again all the way through verse 30. So here it is, uh, John chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, For I've given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. And here's our verses for today. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified. Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus, so Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Heavenly Father, we have read your word and pray that it would be planted deep in our hearts. Lord, your word, it leads to eternal life and that is what we pray for, an understanding of you, a desire to follow you, a desire to be hearers and doers, and ultimately a desire to be with you and with our brothers and sisters in eternity. Lord, we pray that you would grant this desire of our heart today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so a couple of things should jump out at us uh, as we read this passage. Um, first, the, the statements, truly, truly, which, which I hope at this point is not uh, a surprise to anyone to see. Uh, truly, truly, which kind of literally translated, amen, amen, Yes, yes, that's what it means. This is the essence of what it means to follow Jesus. Um, Sometimes you'll you'll be in a class, you know, and the the teacher will say something and then kind of stomp their foot, you know. You know that that's going to be on the test, right? That's what that means. This is kind of what that is for John. Jesus doesn't have this, these, uh, you know, phrases that he grew up with and got from, you know, Mary and Joseph, where, you know, where people say, oh, by the way. Or, to be completely honest, it, it, it's, not just, it's not just a, a, a passing uh, transition into, into something that needs to be said. This is the heart of John's gospel when we see truly, truly. It is that thing that, as a Christian... As a follower of Jesus, when we hear, it should, it should invoke that, mm, that amen. And if it, and if it doesn't, then, then I'll say it is something that, that we need to strongly consider and, and pray about because for John, especially John, the gospel is not merely that Jesus uh, was born uh, of a virgin, that he came and lived a good life and that he died on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead. Now incorporate that into a prayer, and then, and then you'll, you'll be saved. And that's everything that you need right there. That is not John. For John, the essence of being a follower of Jesus is in these statements. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see or enter the kingdom of God. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing." Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life, I am the bread of life. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the door of the sheep. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loses his life, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. When we, when we stand before the judgment throne, John is desperately telling us it is not going to be a four-part, you know, true or false Jesus was born of a virgin. True. True or false, Jesus lived a sinless life. This is is not the essence of being a follower of Jesus. It is not a Bible quiz. For Jesus, these statements are a way for us to take our spiritual temperature. For him, this is what it means to be a believer. And it is according to these statements that we will be judged either faithful... Or unfaithful as a follower of Jesus, as he puts it in chapter eight, verse thirty-one. Whether we are abiding in his word, and truly his disciples. This, this is kind of just an aside, but hopefully re-emphasizing something that we have heard over and over as we've moved through the book of John. All right, so so getting back here to this scene here in chapter three, if you remember from last week, there in verse ten. We have Jesus, and he's just finished washing their feet. Um, It's this symbolic act that he tells them, later you're going to understand it. Right now you don't, but later you will. And then he says, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For Jesus knew who would betray him. And that's why he said, not all of you are clean. And then after that, Jesus kind of, uh, if you remember from last week's sermon, he really humiliates himself uh, in not just, not just a way that's, that would be considered humiliation in just Jewish culture, but really as kind of like a Gentile servant. The ultimate humiliation of cleaning the, the, the dirt, which the dirt, who knows where that dirt came from? I mean, just, just with regard to their, their spiritual awareness. You know, dirt could have been Gentile dirt, which was much more unclean than, uh, than dirt that was on Jewish soil. And here is Jesus who's clothed only in a towel, who's cleaning their feet. And, and, he, and then when he gets dressed, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And, and I'll tell you, hold on to that because I'm telling you that continues to resurface through the remainder of of John's Gospel because what we're what we're doing is when we follow Jesus we're confronted with situations where we ask ourselves how should we respond and Jesus forces us with this statement to say well are we better than Jesus do we get to respond differently than Jesus? Do we get to preserve something more for ourselves? Do we get to take an easier way out? Do do we deserve a, a more comfortable existence or a more comfortable path in God's plan for our lives? And here Jesus emphatically says, no. If you are my follower, you are my servant and a servant is not greater than his master. Look what I have done and really saying, And do likewise so in this chapter we see jesus he says kind of in beginning in verse 10 you are all clean but not judas and then in verse 17 we see he says follow my example and you will be blessed except judas who will not be blessed in fact he will be cursed and then in verse 20 Whoever receives me receives God who sent me. And really implicitly, again, we have this interplay between Jesus talking to the faithful and his disciples and contrasting that with Judas who will not receive him. He will not receive the God who sent him. In fact, Judas will betray him and also betray the God who sent him. I just point this out to emphasize, Jesus is showing us that this this final essential phase of his ministry the greater purpose for which he has come it is incompatible with the nature of judas with the nature of his betrayal but judas is still the agent of change that god chooses for initiating this final part of the redemption plan however he is not allowed to continue any further and and it it's significant I only say that because we may think, well, uh, we may be tempted to think, well, you know, Judas kind of went to the end, right? And then that's when God uh, or Jesus got rid of him. But, but actually, that's not the case. Think about how much Jesus accomplished in that last final week, and that is completely overshadowed by how much Jesus accomplished starting at the Last Supper and leading up to the cross. And that is that is. Uh, also the case in the lives of his disciples, in changing the way that they see the world, the way that they understand God, the way that a, they understand him. Nine chapters left for really what, is, what amounts to uh, about a 24-hour period here. And, and John shows how much Jesus accomplished just in this last um, uh, time period. So. So verse twenty one, that's where we're moving into. Jesus is kind of looking out across the landscape of his ministry, and he's realizing that he is moments away from, from triggering this ultimate betrayal that is going to lead to a that's going to lead to torture, that is going to lead to a slow and painful murder. And so it says Jesus is troubled in his spirit, rightfully so. He says very explicitly, really for the first time, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And so the disciples, maybe for the first time, who knows, are, are kind of all ears at this point. And uh, I mean, it's, it's a troubling statement. They don't know who he's talking about. Maybe they've even forgotten. Uh, if you turn back uh, in John chapter six, John chapter 6, verse 70 and 71, he says, Jesus answered them, his disciples, right, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is the devil, and then it says he spoke this of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him, And, and... I wanna, in some ways, uh, uh, give the disciples a little bit of a leeway, because they're, they are dealing with God, and and Jesus moves in and out of metaphor so often. The things that he says are very difficult to understand. Their expectation is that he's gonna go in and conquer Jerusalem, and so they, they think maybe he's just kind of spiritualizing, and sometimes we do the same thing, right? We're like, well, I'm just a, I am a devil, you know, I'm a sinner, or we kind of, self-deprecation, so maybe Jesus is Doing the same thing but i think it's more important uh, to emphasize this recurring theme where the holy spirit is consistently blinding the disciples preventing them from seeing and understanding the truth until the right moment this is really re-emphasized by jesus who says i'm doing this now and you don't understand it you don't have understanding but later on you will and I think what we'll see here is that later when we get to the prayer scene in the Garden of Gethsemane, I don't want to, you know, spoiler alert, uh, but, uh, you know, there's a, there's a prayer scene later on in the Garden of Gethsemane that the reason for this blinding of the disciples, we see that it accomplishes this final phase, but it forces Jesus into a position where he accomplishes it all by himself, alone, no no friends, no encouragement, no one who even understands him, no one who can even sit at home and say, I feel bad for what he's trying to accomplish. Just zero from those around him. And instead, we have a picture where Jesus is consistently misunderstood, especially by his disciples, and forced to completely rely on God, God's planning, God's provision, without help from any of his followers and even those who are closest to him. All right, so, so it says that, um, that, that Jesus here, after he says this, right, they, they, they're all ears, and they're saying, uh, you know, who is it? And he says, so he does something just amazingly transparent, right? Just amazingly transparent. He says, I am going to dip this morsel of bread, right? And then the one I give it to is the traitor. And so then what does he do, right? He dips the morsel of bread and he gives it to Judas. And so you think to yourself, okay, I can, I have never taken a class in, in logic, but I can put two and two, I can put this together, right? Who is the traitor? It's the person I give this thing to. He gives it to Judas. Judas takes it and eats it. And, and what does it say? What does it say? Well, let's go down to verse 28. Now, no one at the table knew why Jesus said this to, to Judas. Some, some of them thought, maybe, well, Jesus got the money bag. Maybe that's why, maybe that's why Jesus you know, gave him the morsel and said that and, and told him to to go do whatever he's gonna do quickly. Again, just reemphasizing that point, the disciples do not get it. We, we know that. Um, and again, this, this consistent theme where Jesus is alone and yet continues to trust in the provision and planning of God it says in verse 30 then, so after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. And so before we move on, we're not gonna cover this uh, today in the, in the message um, uh, or for the rest of the sermon, but this idea of night is, is really significant in John. Uh, he has a lot of like this really back and forth play between I, what we kind of talked about earlier, this idea of life through death, and then light and darkness, day and night, spring and winter. Um, if you remember, uh, uh, as, as Jesus was walking through the temple, uh, that it was winter, and this idea of winter is really kind of the, the, the darker, uh, they're really the darker feasts. They have nothing to do with harvest, um, and so here is Jesus really he forced for the first time to kind of, uh, uh, I don't want to say retreat, it's not what Jesus does, but he kind of goes off uh, on his own with his disciples and they're kind of camped out away from any of the, these public centers. Uh, in fact, to the point where he says, hey, all right, it's time to get up, let's go. Uh, we got this thing to do with Lazarus and all the disciples are like, let's go with him, we're gonna die with him. And, and we already talked about what a big misunderstanding that was, but the point is there is this, there is this, this good versus evil, this, this father who is God and, and those who are, their father is the devil. And it should cause us, this, it is night, should cause us to think back to those opening verses in John where the word becomes flesh and it said, and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And here we see that this darkness has come and for John, very symbolic of the darkness that is, that is really descending upon Jesus' ministry with this single act of betrayal, descending into the lowest point. And as we follow along, remembering, John gave us the key at the beginning that the light of the world, no matter how dark it becomes, no matter how stifling the darkness is, that it does not overcome the light. It does not overcome God's plan. All right, so, so that's our passage for today. Um, really, we should be asking kind of the question, what should we be, what should we be learning from this? I try, to, I try to just do one point usually, uh, because I have trouble uh, you know even in marriage, if I get more than one thing at a time, I just I fall apart. Uh, but I really had a tough time distilling it down um, to less than three. So, so I've got three things uh, for you today. Um, that's what we're gonna talk about. Um, so, so number one. Betrayal and traitors are part of God's plan. We, we have talked a lot about this idea that God prepares people ahead of time for his purpose. And we are seeing, it's very nice when we, when we dwell on the idea that God prepared these disciples ahead of time to go forth and to, to bring light and to bring hope, to people who needed it, it is is much more difficult for us to dwell on the idea that God allows betrayal and that he allows traitors to be an intimate part of how he accomplishes his will. But I just wanna remind you, if you think back, Jesus is accomplishing life through death, right? He's accomplishing these great, amazing things like victory through defeat. And so we we need to remind ourselves that 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 column, the kind of not-so-nice column, the evil column, the column where betrayers and traitors and where treachery exists, it works in God's plan to bring about his greater purpose. If we just even think about the horror of the cross. The, the cross was, was, it was the Roman symbol of power. And if, if you were on a cross, you had just uh, been handed uh, a, a letter of defeat by the Roman army. That's what it meant. That you had just been defeated. I'm sorry, we both engaged in battle. You lost. And here we have a Savior who ends up on a cross. And now what does the cross become for all Christians? It becomes... Kind of this, like, you know, in your face, it becomes the, you can't do anything to us. This is the best that you had when it came to defeat, and yet it is, it is our victory. It is, it is our victory cry. It is the thing that we raise high. But it doesn't make it easy. We need to know that betrayal and the traitors are part of God's plan. And kind of along those lines, Jesus knows. He knows who the traitors are in his church and he allows them to be intimately integrated into his ministry. So if you would uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 13, it's the first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 13, just going to look at this real quick, Um, not spend a lot of time on it. but Matthew chapter 13, verse 24, the parable of the weeds, or in some people's is the wheat and the tares, but uh, I'll read it. It says, um, Jesus put another parable before them, the people he's teaching, and he says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. I want to remind you that that we are not called to hunt down and to get rid of uh, betrayal. There is no guarantee that we even know, to be honest. You know, Peter and Judas up to this point have both been mentioned, you know, the same number of times. And I don't know if, if, uh, Peter is really any less of a candidate for betrayal than Judas is. Jesus knows, though. And so you might ask yourself, so, so this, I mean, we, we don't want to encourage, right? We don't want to encourage an environment where it's like, well, betrayal and treachery, that's what we're looking for in our church. It's, it's not. So, so what's the solution? Well, going back to what we were talking about, the truly, truly, That's what we're called to. We are called to live and to confront each other and to confess to one another in accordance with Jesus' teachings, with the things that Jesus commanded us. To love one another. If we find those who are being unloving, we should go to them. If we find those who are saying, I will not forgive, we should go to them, those who are not showing grace. If we do this, those who are not truly following Jesus will eventually, as, as Jesus says in his parable, eventually be separated out anyway. And then we need to know that betrayal is a part of how God accomplishes his work. You don't need to turn there um, because you really have to use your index. It's buried deep in the Old Testament. Habakkuk um, one thirteen. Most people are like, Habakkuk? What's that? Uh, it is a book in the Bible. It's, it's actually fairly significant. We don't preach on it, uh, but there's a really great. It is a, just a fantastic book. It's so short, you should read it. But it's, there's this great statement in there in one thirteen. He says, he, "This is a back saying to God, kind of in in a not so nice voice. You who are pure of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, that's you, God." Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man who is more righteous than he? This is Habakkuk's. I know you're a righteous God. How can you let this happen? And I, and I love it because for the, rest of, uh, for the rest of the book, God makes this really crushing uh, response. And he says, he poses this, this question. He says... Are you really interested in my glory? Habakkuk and people of God, are you really interested in my glory? And you know, kind of the assumed answer is, well, of course, we're your people, right? And and if so, what if your destruction leads to greater glory for me? Are you interested in my glory then? Are you still interested in following me if your destruction leads to my glory? I think it's important that that we ask ourselves this question. It needs to be addressed before we start claiming this deep loyalty to Jesus because what if the pain and suffering of our physical bodies, what if the loss of what we hold dear, what if those things happen at the hands of, of betrayal or the hands of a traitor? and God is using it to bring himself glory, are we interested in that kind of God? Are we interested in following a God who allows evil to impact our lives in ways that hurt us and may even lead us to death? It exists. And the comfort that we have is that Jesus tells us ahead of time, and he tells us that it's going to lead to victory. This is the promise that we have, and that's why I say, Jesus says over and over, you're not greater than your master. Think of what happened to me and think of the glorious ending that, that came about because of it. The same thing, the same promise exists for the followers of God. All right, so that's point number one. Betrayal and traitors are part of God's plan. Point number two, Betrayal threatens to derail our faithfulness. Let's look at verse 21, John 21, if you're still there. All right, so John 21, it says, After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. I said I was going to, it's kind of a spoiler alert. I'm going to jump over real quick to 16, verse 1 through 4. Uh, Jesus says, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, "Oh, I'm sorry, this is, uh, I'm, I'm going to jump over there later. I'm jumping over to 16, 1 through 4. Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, I have said these things to you. Why is Jesus telling them that, this, that betrayal is going to happen? Because, he says, to keep you from falling away. This betrayal, this, this, this ending that you don't want, or the middle part that you don't want, it threatens to, to pull you away from me. It threatens to cause you to fall away. He's saying, look what's going to happen to you in verse 2. They will put you out of the synagogues. The, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's even offering a service to God. And they're gonna do these things because they don't know the Father and they don't know me, but I'm telling you these things ahead of time so that when the hour comes, you can remember that I told them to you. The way that we respond to treachery and betrayal, it says as much and sometimes more about the God that we serve, the God that we believe in than the way Many times that we respond to things like friendship and love and grace and mercy. And Jesus shows us how we should respond to this. He responds with trust in God's plan. He moves forward knowing that despite, uh, despite his toleration of Judas, that it's going to lead to his death and the hopelessness of his disciples and shatter his ministry, He moves forward and trusts God's plan. And then, I think it's up here, Jesus shows us how, he also reminds us that this betrayal is not against us, that it's ultimately against God. And if we believe in an all-powerful, almighty God who will bring justice about, then we know that this betrayal against him, that it will not stand and that it will lead to our salvation. Jesus says in verse thirteen or chapter thirteen, verse twenty Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. So look at this in the same way that those who receive Jesus receive God, and understand also that the opposite is true. Those who betray Jesus, who betray us, they're betraying God and the God that we believe in who is just, he will bring about this righteousness that we desire. He will bring about the justice that we seek. All right, that's point one and two. Point number three, there is a devil. It seems ridiculous to have to say this in a church, but it absolutely needs to be said. The devil is real. We relegate him sometimes to, you know, fairy tales. And fairy tales now that we don't even tell our kids. It's kind of like, well, those are the German fairy tales. The devil's part of the German fairy tales. We don't tell our kids German fairy tales. because The kids always, they never come home actually in the German fairy tales. Um, we, we get rid of him. It's, it's something almost we feel ridiculous talking about. It doesn't fit with our, our intellectual culture. And so, we need to be reminded he is, he is evil, meaning he will leverage every single resource he has to stay in power and to undermine God's work. He is smart. That is another thing that we don't think about. He's going to look for ways to exploit, exploit you. John and Luke make a really good point that for Judas, probably money was that leverage point, right? Because ultimately, 30 pieces of silver, that's what, that's what he, he did this for. Sometimes it's quick, sometimes it's decisive, and it takes advantage of a narrow window of sin in our lives. But to be completely honest, most of the time, Satan is taking advantage of the long game. Because we think so short-term. He's taking advantage of areas that he can leverage in our lives that he can put pressure on, and after, after time, we don't even notice that we're susceptible in these areas. We don't even notice that we've relinquished them, that they don't belong to God. And that last point, he's desperate. He will do whatever it takes. And, and if you do not believe that, and if, if you do not think that, I would say that is an area of susceptibility in and of itself. Jesus talks about Jesus casts out in one of the miracle uh, the in one of the stories of Jesus miracles he casts out a legion of demons that resides in one person. Think about the amount of resources that Satan is willing to commit even to one person's life to bring about his plan to undermine God's will. We need to remember this. All right, so those are the three things. Oops, I'll just go back. No, I won't. Those are the three things, if you wrote them down. I just want to say, for those who don't know Jesus, I urge you to give your trust and to give your loyalty to him. We see this message over and over that that we hear in John, which is trust in him before it's too late we have the opportunity now, we see him now, we experience him now, the now is not going to last forever. We don't know how long. And it's clear that the presence of Jesus is not dependent on when it's convenient for you. So, so I urge you to, to give great consideration to that. For those, this is the less, the, uh, the less exciting one to talk about for those who are on the path to betrayal in the church. I I urge each one of us to examine ourselves in light of this scripture today. Not just the things that come to mind that bother you about you, or even the things that come to my mind that bother me about you. Think about the things that bother Jesus about you. We know what they are. He's, he's told us in his word. We have access to it. Rejecting and disobeying God's word, it's more about personal preference and how your life is uh, going to turn out, you know, whether you're going to get that job or not. It's, it's more than that. They show over and over again that sin and disobedience, they are the footholds for the devil in your life. I want to give you two areas uh, to think about. One is money. Um, We don't talk about money in church because you're not supposed to. It's kind of an unspoken thing in the US church, but money. So just think about it in this way. When you make decisions to be more responsible with your money, to start budgeting for your finances, do they revolve around what God's plan is for how you use your money, or do they revolve around what your plan is for how you want to use your money? Some things. Uh, new car, family vacation, new living room set, remodeling the kitchen, sending your kids to college. And I'm not saying that saving for your kids' college is a sin. Please do not go away with that. I'm saying that if your money decisions only ever revolve around you, then all Satan has to do is create a conflict between you, or sorry, between your money and the Word of God, and now he has a foothold and he has a place for leverage. All right, money. Time is the second thing. When you clear out space in your hectic schedule, because we all have hectic schedules because we live in America, it's what we do, it's what we're good at. When you decide to shift around time or drop something, is that based on how you want to use your time? Or is it based on what you think God is wanting you to do with your time, where God is, just, is calling you to invest your time? And here's some examples. Attending a party, watching a movie, watching television shows, guilty. Uh, Spending more time on Twitter, not guilty. Watching the next sports, sports championship, Mayweather versus Pacquiao. Reading more books, picking up a new hobby. The list goes on. And again, watching the Super Bowl is not a sin but I'm just telling you, if you think that that all God wants is Sunday between 10.30 and noon, and it looks like it's going to be noon 30, if that's all you think that God wants, then all Satan has to do is create some kind of conflict between your time and God's time, and now he has leverage in your life. And please do not be foolish enough to think that he will not use it, that he just kind of, well, I just give up. You know what? Jesus won, why even try anymore? All right, for those who, for those who have been betrayed, this, this may be quite a few of us, even if it's not in the church. And if you have not been betrayed, I promise you, if you live long enough, you, you will be. I urge you, especially in light of what Jesus teaches about his call for our faithfulness, his demand for our faithfulness to understand and believe the promises that he gives us, the promises that he gives us here in his word. They extend beyond just the passage we study today, but these promises are that he will work these things out for our good that justice will come about in the end, but this evil and this betrayal, it has a purpose in our lives when we follow him. Our church culture, I said it before, we should not culture an environment uh, that harbors betrayal and treachery and like values it. Oh, we're accomplishing God's will. We serve Jesus, and we know that betrayal and treachery are going to happen. And when it does, we also know that God has a purpose for it and he is bringing about his magnificent plan and it includes his glory, which, remember, fills the entire earth and it leads to our rescue and our salvation. That is his promise. There's no betrayal so great that it can undermine God's plan for our lives and for our salvation. And then remember, as we are confronted with the idea of betrayal in the church, that a servant is not greater than their master. Jesus endured betrayal knowingly and allowed it to happen so that he could bring about our salvation. These words should encourage us, and when we hear them ahead of time, they're intended to keep us from falling away, to keep us faithful regardless of our circumstances. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we ask for your mercy and for your grace. Lord, we ask for your forgiveness that we do not have hearts That tolerate evil or betrayal, and that we become discouraged at the first sign of it. But Lord, I pray as we have read this passage, as we have considered your character, as we have considered the obedience of Jesus, that we would believe. First, that we would know that we are not greater than Jesus. That we will not, for some reason, be able to avoid betrayal, to be able to avoid treachery, and to be able to avoid Satan constantly trying to find footholds in our life. We're not greater somehow than Jesus is. And so when it comes about, I pray, give us each a lens lens of faithfulness through which to view this that you are using these things to bring about your great purpose that even in great defeat according to how the world measures it God you can achieve even greater victory we pray ultimately for that victory in our lives the day that we stand before your throne we see you face to face and you welcome us into eternity where we live in perfect fellowship with no evil and without treachery, without betrayal, with our brothers and sisters, and in perfect harmony with you, our God. We pray these things in the name of Jesus and by the power of your Holy Spirit who accomplishes all of these things in our lives. Accomplish these things in our church, we pray. Amen.